0: Good morning. Welcome to um, Aletheia Church. Uh, My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at the church. Uh, I have a couple of quick announcements for you guys this morning uh, before we dive into our text. So the first thing, I kind of just want to address the elephant in the room because of the text we just read. Um, This morning's message will discuss sex, sexual immorality. It will contain sexual themes. Um, There's nothing explicit mentioned throughout the sermon this morning, but um, if this is something that uh, we tried to grab parents on their way in this morning, but if this is something that you do not want your kids or teenagers uh, exposed to, they are welcome to go down to the children's ministry this morning and hang out even if they're over age. Uh, we'll leave that up to you and your judgment as parents, but just want to let you know that we'll be working through those things this morning and what uh, Paul is talking about. So just want to make you guys fully aware that we're going to address the text this morning. Uh Second thing, uh, if this is your first time or you haven't gotten one yet, we have scripture journals available for you guys. If you just want to raise your hand, that's our free gift to you. We would love to give uh, that to you. Uh, And we have some people that walk around and give those. We love the word of God here. We love it so much that we go through it verse by verse, which means we even cover verses like the ones that Uh, Luke just read for us a minute ago because God addresses things. And so if you need one, just raise your hand. We'd love to give one to you as a gift. Feel free to bring those back with you. Uh, If you're a part of our gospel communities, take those with you as well. And so uh, we're going to be finishing up chapter six this morning. And then next week, uh, we'll move into chapter seven. And the next three weeks will actually kind of be a mini series for us as a church where we'll spend some time talking about marriage and singleness and God's design for that because Paul's going to address those things at the beginning of chapter 7. And we wanted to take a little bit of extra time to address those things from a biblical perspective, not just the things that Paul is talking about in chapter 7. So be ready for that. That we'll be taking a little bit of a, a, a two- or three-week detour, and then Pastor Daniel in four weeks will kind of wrap all that back up again at the end of chapter 7. And so uh, last week, Pastor Daniel covered the first half of chapter six for us. And uh, he did a really good job of making sure that he set up for us how the first half of the chapter and the second half of the chapter are connected. And uh, he he shared with us that there was fighting and disunity going on inside of this church at Corinth. And one of the things that was happening is that uh, Christians inside of this church were taking one another to court over civil lawsuits and civil matters. And Paul had a lot to say about that. You know, he kind of started out by saying, hey, first and foremost, you guys should be able to settle this amongst yourselves. But if you're having trouble settling it amongst yourselves, you know, shouldn't there be people that are wise enough inside of the church for you guys to be able to take these matters to as an arbitrator? And he kind of poked fun at them a little bit, but he basically just said, hey, let the church leadership settle this issue. And last but not least even if the church leadership is unable to settle this for you, wouldn't it be better for you to be defrauded than allow yourselves to go to these Roman courts for a trial? And Daniel talked about why that was problematic and how the the Roman courts were full of corruption and you could basically buy the courts and why there were all sorts of reasons not to trust those courts to begin with. But the question kind of boiled down is, why is Paul addressing this in the first place? Why was it such a big deal that Christians should be willing to go through this process of reconciliation and restoration and conflict management. And Daniel said it was all tied into what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 11. Let me read that for you. He says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. See in the first eight verses of chapter six, Paul addresses a number of things that the Corinthian Church was battling and struggling with. And he he kind of quotes those in his, in the first few verses, Uh, right before verse 11. But he says, you know, hey, you guys are known as thieves, slanderers, greedy, swindlers, and the way that you're treating one another. These are the terms that could be used to describe you. And then when you get to verse 10, he says, some of you were called sexually immoral, adulterers, homosexuals, uh, committing and partaking in prostitution. And then he gets to verse 11. Right? And what he says is, is all these things were known about you in the past, But here's the truth about you now. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. Live that way. Right? Instead of living as people trying to cheat one another and go to court and win the court case and and see justice done, live as people instead that are actively being transformed into the image of Jesus. And this is exactly why we titled our study in this letter, The Church, A Transformed People. Because that is the the actual point and theme of Paul's entire letter to them. Hey, you guys were bought with the blood of Christ. You are washed, sanctified, justified. Live that way. Live out of your identity, not for it. Don't live for performance. Live out of who God says you are and what Christ has done for you. And so as Paul addresses their fighting and disunity, he doesn't just call them to live better. He calls them to recognize who they are in Christ and respond to that reality through obedience and fidelity to him. And one of the ways that the church in Corinth needed to respond to who God was calling them to be. And one of the ways they needed to grow and experience sanctification and becoming more like Jesus was in the area of sexual ethics. If you know anything about Corinth, Corinth was a city of very loose sexual ethics and codes even by Roman and Greek standards. Uh, they actually had temples inside the city of Corinth that were designed for prostitution and where sex was an idol and to be worshiped, where you would actually go in and participate in sex with a prostitute as an act of worship to that deity. And so these were common things going on inside of this city. And Paul knows that many of them had experienced and participated in this type of activity in the past. And many of them were struggling to move past that and have their minds and their thinkings and their lives transformed by the reality of who Christ was and they were running back to these things. And so Paul's calling them to repentance here when we get to verse 12 to say, hey, your old way of doing things is not the way that God designed it. Your old way of living your life is not the way God wants you to live. And he's gonna anticipate the defenses that they're going to make and the arguments that they're going to take towards him and his stance on this. And he's going to address those in these verses. So let's look at them again real quickly. And then we're going to start kind of diving through the text here and and talking about what specifically is going on and why Paul is addressing this. So starting in verse 12, Paul's quoting the Corinthians here. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by his power. Do you not know All right, so let's start by saying this, right? Paul is addressing them, and he's going to address some specific arguments. But before we dive into that, I want to to just make sure we understand what kind of was going on historically and contextually in this city. Specifically, what was happening is people inside the Corinthian church were still going into these um, various temples and sleeping with the prostitutes that were inside of these temples. And they were calling it an act of worship. And what we see here in these verses that I just read were some of the defenses that they were giving to doing that. But you'll notice that that's not the only thing that Paul calls out inside of those verses. He he calls what's going on inside of the church sexual immorality. And if you know anything about the Greek, the original Greek, that term is a Greek word called porneia. It's where we get our word pornography from. And basically to be able to describe that word for you and talk to you about what Paul means, we just need to say that word is a catch-all term for any type of sexual activity, sexual ethic going on outside of God's design for sex inside of a heterosexual monogamous marriage. And so when Paul uses that terminology, he's going to be addressing the very specific situation going on inside of the church at Corinth with temple prostitution, but his His points that he's going to be making in the, in the the call that he's gonna be giving to them to to live as people who are washed and sanctified and justified has applications far more reaching than just that particular sin going on inside of the church. It's gonna have implications for pornography addiction. It's gonna have implications for fornication and premarital sex, as we would call it today. It's gonna have uh, implications for homosexuality and many of the things that we find on the LGBTQIA spectrum today in 2021 that there's all sorts of things that would fall inside of that spectrum that Paul is listing there. And so when we see what he's talking about this, he immediately anticipates, because he lived in this city and he knows what's going on there, he immediately anticipates the defense that's going to be given to the temple prostitution. And here's the first one that they throw out there. They're going to argue for their freedom. They're gonna say, hey, well, you told me that, that we're free in Christ. You taught me that God has liberated us and freed us. And so all things are lawful to me, right? And he quotes that specific quote two separate times in the text there. If another translation, the Christian Standard Bible translates it as everything is permissible for me. So basically what the Corinthians were saying to Paul as he starts to address these issues of sexual immorality inside of the church, is they're saying, hey, look, I have the God-given right to freely enjoy whatever I want, and this includes my sexual appetites. That was their argument. And if you notice Paul's response to both of those quotations there in verse 12, it's pretty fascinating. He kind of says, yeah, you do. He doesn't doesn't charge in at them and start screaming at them and yelling at them for using that as a defense. Look at what he says. All things are lawful for me. Well, yes, but not all things are helpful. Well, all things are lawful for me. Yes, but I will not be dominated by anything. What Paul is sharing here, guys, and this, this is kind of the first thing we need to understand and, we'll, and I'll dive into this just a minute about the way that our sexual ethic, many of us in this room, the way that that's been formed over the years and why many of us think the way that we think about sex and sexual immorality and sexual ethics in our culture. But Paul's kind of given this key idea that doesn't even need to be attached to just the idea of sexual ethics. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. How many of you guys as a kid ever did something dumb? You were following a friend of yours or whatever else and they convinced you to do something, you did something stupid and your parents found out and your immediate defense to them was, well, so-and-so did it first and so I followed them. Okay, like six of you. Six of you have done that. Okay, the rest of you are liars. And how many of the six of you that raised your hand ever heard this response from your parents? If so-and-so jumped off a bridge, would you jump off with them? Right? Okay. All the hands went up, and then some of the ones that didn't go up earlier. I have no idea what's going on now. Right? I heard that line probably thirty thousand times as a kid growing up, and you know, just to the parents in the room, if your parents if your kids as stubborn as I was, yeah, I might actually jump off the bridge with them, and I probably wasn't lying. But what we see even in that kind of response and what we see in the defense that the Corinthians were saying about their sexual ethics and their sexual appetites as they're talking to Paul and Paul's responding to them is human beings, all of us, every single one of us in this room, no one's exempt from this, have a dangerous propensity to not understand the seriousness of sin and the confusion it creates in our own hearts. We, 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 we battle with that. And just because we are free or able to do something does not mean that that something is actually for our good, even though we think that it is. Right? I remember as a five-year-old thinking that Oreos were the greatest th- tasting thing on the earth. And my neighbor brought out some Oreos one time and I ate probably about 100 Oreos. I have never felt so ill in my life. I have not had an Oreo since. Because the reality is, right, is that something that is good and seems good can be taken too far. By the way, that actually is a sin inside of scripture. It's called gluttony. It's almost as if God knows something about us. And as we think through these things, right, what we see is that there is this propensity propensity in us as human beings to not understand that God gives laws and commands for our good, not just for the sake of giving them. You know, I have noticed over my years as a Christian that many times what I tend to view as freedom and what others tend to view as freedom actually ends up becoming slavery and enslavement. I have a family member who, m- many years ago, when, when I was in high school and, and going into college, he was in middle school, and they, my uncle had invited um, a, a family member to come live in their home. It was a, a kind of a chaotic situation. And what happened to my cousin is he and his cousin, who was living with them, they started smoking marijuana together. You know, and, and first thing you guys need to understand is 20 years ago, the, the cultural perception of marijuana use was very different than it is today. You know, you would have probably, if I'd have said that 20 years ago, some of you guys would be like, <gasps> right? There was just a different kind of cultural perception to it 20 years ago. But I don't share that just to, to talk about what the cultural perception of cannabis and the way that that's changed over the last 20 years is. Because here's what kind of ended up happening from him. You know, because it was illegal and because you weren't allowed to use it and because he was underage and because his dad had rules, right, things started happening. He started becoming more and more addicted to the use of it. He started enjoying it more and more, so then he had to hide it more and more. Well, cannabis costs money, and so the more he needed to do, he started stealing to be able to get money to use it. He ended up going off to college, and his cannabis use kind of became so frequent that he started missing class, and he ended up not finishing college. I mean, this is all things that he would freely tell you, right? With that cannabis use. Right? He got married, continued to use it, still hadn't finished college. He had a job, but his cannabis use caused him to miss work and get fired. And in the midst of that, he was already having marital issues. He had been stealing money from family members to be able to support his habit, stealing money from his wife without her knowing about it. And he ended up getting fired without her knowing about it. And when she found out why he got fired, finally, it all came out. What was going on? And it destroyed his marriage. And they ended up divorcing. And my, my cousin, and what I see in that when I look at that as I say, something my cousin viewed as a good thing, and he would still tell you to this day that he thinks cannabis has medicinal purposes. But what became a good thing to be used became something he became enslaved to. And it wrecked his life. It ruined his marriage. Caused him not to finish school. Something as simple as a joint because that's what sin does. And what we view as freedom often becomes slavery. And sexual sin works much the same way because sex was designed by God for a number of good reasons, but full devotion to it leads to slavery and the consequences thereof. I mean, this is low-hanging fruit, but let's just take pornography and pornography abuse, for example because I think many of us know about the dangers that pornography can can have on culture and society. And yet the argument for pornography is that it's liberating, it's not harming anyone, uh, that it's our choice and that we're free to use it. And I'm not even gonna get bogged down in the weeds of some of those arguments for it. But let's just compare it to what Paul's saying here is saying, well, just because I'm free to do something, I will not be dominated by it. I'm not gonna fall into slavery with that thing. Roughly 5 to 8% of adults right now in the United States are addicted to pornography. Don't use it, are addicted to it. And the statistics play out that with that addiction, the average addict spends anywhere from 11 to 12 hours a week watching pornography. 11 to 12 hours. It's a lot of time. That's more than a full workday for some people. Studies have also shown that those that regularly view pornography, not those labeled as addicts, but those that regularly view it, show higher rates of depression, anxiety, and substance abuse than the rest of culture and society around them. Add on top of that, that in 2010, and I would imagine that these statistics are worse now, and in 2010, 47% of families, when surveyed, reported that pornography was a problem in their home. Whether it was with a child, a mother, a father, someone struggled with it and it was a problem in the home. And with that, pornography was also shown to increase the chances of fidelity inside, infidelity inside of a relationship by 300%. there are dozens of other statistics just about pornography alone that would reveal the same thing to you. And I don't share those with you to scare you straight, but to make something abundantly clear that Paul is trying to show us. What we often view as freedom is actually slavery disguised as liberation and freedom. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to them. He said, you have been freed in Christ, washed, sanctified, justified, freed by Jesus and what he has done for you. Why would you re-enslave yourself to your old life? God has finally liberated you to enjoy sex by his design the good gift that he has given you to enjoy within the context that he has created it to be enjoyed in, why would you re-enslave yourself? Andrew Wilson, in his commentary on Corinthians, put it this way. He says, the point of Christian freedom is to be freed from sin, not to sell yourself into slavery to it. And I think what we so often do as believers, believing that something is good, believing that we're free to enjoy something, believing that we're free to do something, is what we actually do is we enslave ourselves instead to the very thing that God liberated us from. And Paul says, there's no need to do this. God has freed you from that. Live out your identity in Christ. So that first argument we see is an argument of freedom. And guys, I don't know if you see these things or not, but these are common arguments with, with common sexual ethical issues today in our own culture. The, the two arguments that you're gonna see Paul go against are common arguments made today. The second one is this one. Look at verse 13. We've got freedom being the argument in verse 12. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Seems kind of like, well, that's kind of strange and bizarre. What what kind of quote is that? The argument they're making is hey, this is a natural human impulse that human beings have. We should just give into it. The same way that my stomach needs food, my body needs sex. And so I'm just going into the temple to have sex because I need it. It's natural. Just giving into my natural urges. I'm simply satisfying a physical need of my sexual appetite. Now, guys, I. I don't know if there's a more common argument made in 2021 for sexual perversion than that one. And what, what, what you need to understand and one of the reasons why that, that comment is so common is because we are a byproduct, every single one of us in this room, of a major cultural movement that occurred in the 1960s known as the sexual revolution or the sexual liberation movement. And that was when the movement really gained steam culturally, and there started being major cultural shifts and changes on how sex was observed and thought about in our culture commonly. But it started long before that. Kind of the first way that started was with a psychologist by the name of Sigmund Freud. Some of you guys are laughing because you know how crazy he was. I mean, I even had psychology professors in at West Virginia University that when they introduced him to us, was like, he was crazy. But a lot of our sexual ethics are built off of things he believed and taught. Right? What Freud believed was that human beings could be reduced down to what are what motivated us by our unconscious desires, or how we would commonly put it as like our animal instincts. That human beings simply just give in to their animal instincts or urges, and that we shouldn't hold people accountable for that because they're just simply giving in to their instincts. Hope you enjoy being treated as an animal your whole life, but let's keep going. That psychological viewpoint kind of picked up steam over time. And by the 1920s, a uh, professor and anthropologist by the name of Margaret Mead kind of wrote this seminal work for academic institutions uh, called Coming of Age in Samoa. And what had happened is she had gone to Samoa and she'd studied the sexual patterns, and and, um, she studied the ethics of Samoan culture, and what she found while she was there is that Samoans in the teenage years participated in um, sexual activity with partners and spouses long before average Americans did, and that they had much healthy sexual relations later in life because of it, at least by her definition, And so she came back and she wrote this piece and she said, hey, I think Americans should do this as well. Now, granted, any good anthropologist will also notice that that's not the only difference between Samoan culture and American culture. Predominantly, you know, they were tribal, we were not. They got married a lot earlier, we do not. There was a number of things involved there, but this was the thing that she pulled out of there. And this caused a a normative kind of like shift saying, hey, sexual behavior should be normative amongst teenagers not the exception, and America should adopt this. And then by the time you get to 1953, you have a guy by the name of Hugh Hefner who starts a magazine called Playboy where he normalizes nudity and sexuality and throws it at people so they can partake it and use it as currency. And guys, I'm here to tell you that this movement, whether you know it or not, fuels many of your thoughts on sexual norms and what many of your peers around you think about sexual ethics in our culture, whether you realize it or not. Things like birth control did not exist to the level that it, did, that it does now before about the 1960s. Normative nudity, the proliferation of pornography. And, and, and when I say pornography, pornography has existed for a very, very long time but the normative use of pornography in society and throwing those things out was drastically changed when Playboy came about. When you see things like premarital sex being elevated, homosexuality, alternative forms of sexuality, and even abortion, all of these things have become normalized or are currently being more normalized now in our cultural since this movement took place. And the question we need to ask ourselves is twofold. One, are we really just following our natural, normal human instincts when we give in to whatever our sexual appetites and desires may be, as the Corinthians are arguing here, as Freud argued, and how we, as grandchildren and great grandchildren of the sexual revolution, might believe? And two, was the sexual liberation movement really as liberating as we are led to believe? Now, I think you could go back to what we just argued about as far as freedom and know what Paul's answer to that would be. No, you're enslaving yourself in the name of freedom. But look at what Paul says in verse 13 to this argument on whether giving into every single sexual appetite and desire we have is natural and normal and good. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for good. Look at Paul's response. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Here is something that we need to all leave the room understanding this morning about sex, sexual ethics, and our own body. You might think you have complete autonomy and control and are in complete control of yourself and no one else has a right over that. And at least from a political perspective, that would be true. But in the cosmic and judicial sense, you were created and God has final say over his creation. And I, I love saying things like this. Here's why. Because the moment I say something like that, I see some squirming, right? We're all there. It's hard to hear that. God is in power and control, not you. But this is what scripture teaches us. And Paul says, yeah, you can Take this natural argument and participate in sleeping with the prostitutes in the temple, and say that it's natural and that you're just giving into a natural desire. But God, the same way that God's going to destroy your stomach because He's not going, you're not going to have a need for food. Yeah, think about the same thing in regards to your body and sexual organs, because God did not design you for that. He designed you to enjoy that inside of monogamous heterosexual marriage for His glory. He's going to go on to say that you weren't just created right, to do whatever you want, but that as Christians, especially, your body is a member of Christ. Therefore, it's not just about you, but it's about Jesus. He says that in verse 15. He says in verse 19 that your body is a temple to God's Holy Spirit, and that to participate in sexual immorality is to bring shame upon the name of Christ and to defile the temple of your God. I don't know if you guys have ever read the Old Testament or not, but when people defiled the temple or the tabernacle, they died because of God's holiness and the separation between what is holy and what is unholy. God takes it very seriously. He says in verse 20, if you continue to make this argument about your autonomy and it being natural in your freedom, that if you are a professing follower of Jesus, you can't even make that argument because you were bought with a price out of your slavery to sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. You were enslaved to sin and Satan and Jesus through his life, death, crucifixion, burial and resurrection paid the price to purchase you out of slavery to redeem you and to free you, not to walk back into that slavery, but to live free from it. And then he says in verse 17 that we are united with Christ and to sleep with a prostitute. And I have no idea how this works, but I know that Paul says it. It's to invite Jesus to be united with a prostitute. Don't ask me how that works. I just know that Paul said it and I don't wanna be a part of it. And what, so what does all this mean? Right, because I think the common thing that gets taken away from this, when the church starts talking about sexual immorality and starts talking about all these issues, it usually is treated as the church is yelling at me and telling me all the things I do wrong and trying to deny me my freedom. But I think Paul is communicating something much differently here. If we go back to verse 11, if we go back and see what Paul is saying to them, hey, guys, like, li- like listen up for a second. You're participating in prostitution, adultery, infidelity, sexual immorality. Don't you, don't you realize who you are? You're sons and daughters of the king of the universe. You were washed and sanctified, been justified. Like, like don't... Don't you realize this about yourself? Don't you realize what all this means? God cares about you. God loves you. He cares about your body. He cares about what you do to yourself. He cares about what you participate in. And sex... And sexual immorality outside of marriage distorts that. And because God cares, because God is like a dad that is heartbroken when he sees his children commit the same errors and mistakes over and over again and afflict the same pain to, and, and injure themselves over and over again, God sees us doing the same and he calls us to a better way not an obedience that earns his favor, but a favor that loves us and calls us to obedience. I know this may be hard to, to realize, but do you know that God cares more about you than you care about you? Just pause and think about that for a second. Right? Scripture teaches us that before we were even born, God had the numbers of hair on your head counted out. That he had a plan for you. That he loves you. That that same God would send his only son to die for your sin and rebellion so that you might be liberated from it. To live for him. You know, when I hear people talk about what the Bible says about sexual ethics and what the church teaches on sexual ethics, most of what I time is here is, oh, man, the church is stuck in the past. The church is, you know, they, they just struggle to move on. They struggle, they struggle to see how we've been liberated. They're just trying to confine me. One, first and foremost, our generation and the generations before us are not the first to find ways to be sexually perverse. So don't let that argument fly, right? Just take them straight straight to the letter of Corinthians. Yeah, nice try, buddy. First century Corinth had you beat. As great as we've been since 1960, previous cultures had it figured out. They were before us. You're not even that woke. But on top of that, right, what do we see in God's word? That when God says something, it comes to pass. When God says something, it is true. And when we see all the way back in Genesis, we see that God created sex. And the Corinthians wanted to take what God had created as a good gift to be enjoyed inside of marriage and cheapen it. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality, Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Do you see what Paul is saying here? And you guys may have noticed this. How many of you guys have ever lied before? Every hand should be up or you're lying right now. How many of you guys, when you've lied, and you know you've sinned against God and you've sinned against somebody else by doing that, it's one of the 10 commandments, don't argue with me, it's just what the word says, right? When you've lied, right? And some of you probably lie semi-regularly. I mean, we get so good at lying, we call some of them white lies. Eh, not that bad, you know, it's just a white lie. How many of you guys, if someone were to come up and you were to meet somebody for the first time, you'd say, hi, my name is Kevin and I'm a liar, Nice to meet you. that would be bizarre, right? right? How many of you guys have ever stolen something? Don't raise your hand. A few, a few are. <laughs> True transparency. If you stole something, right, you would be known as a thief. Maybe even you steal on a regular basis. You steal time from work. Right? As I tell some of you students who refuse to go to class, you are robbing from me because my tax dollars pay for your bright futures. Go to class. Some be like, if you then introduced yourself, yeah, I'm a swindler, a crook, and a thief, would you identify that way? One of my favorite shows, The Office, Creed Bratton talks about how much he loves stealing, but he's like poked fun of for that. He's like, I just love stealing. Everyone's like, all right, weirdo. You are the strange guy in the office. They're even poking fun at him. Right? We wouldn't introduce ourselves that way, correct? We wouldn't want to be labeled as a thief, a swindler, a liar. Yet think about sexual sin. Do you notice how it becomes an identity issue? I am homosexual. I am bisexual. I am free to do whatever I want. I'm free. I'm free to be addicted to pornography. Don't tell me I can't do that. I'm a player. And What Paul says there is all that is being displayed when that happens is we're showing the magnitude and the depth of which we sinned against ourselves where our very identity as a human being made in the image and likeness of God is brought into question. And guys, this is not me saying that it's not real to struggle with this self. Every single person in here wrestles with these things, myself included. I was addicted to pornography for over a decade. I was exposed to pornography at age five. I was sexually assaulted and molested by my neighbor at age five and six. These are all realities. Some of you guys have stories way, way worse than that, and realities way, way worse than that. Well, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is this, Kevin, you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified by your savior. Don't run back to your enslavement. Flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Because when you sin against yourself, your very identity is brought into question. Your very instincts will affect you on a physical, mental, and emotional level. And so maybe it would help us then to just make sure we took a step back and just said, well, what is God's design for sex? Why did he create it in the first place? What is God's design? Why did he create it in the first place? So we might know, hey, this is, this is what we're aiming for so that when we start finding ourselves outside those bounds, maybe we'll know what to recorrect to, maybe we'll know what to repent of, and maybe know what we're called to do. So here are three, just really quick, and this would not be a, uh, a seminary-worthy exhaustive work of the text, but here are just three simple kind of biblical views of sex. I've borrowed these from Tim Chalice, who is an author and Christian blogger, and he goes in a lot more depth on his website. But here are three things that we just need to understand about God's design for sex. And this, by the way, is why some of the arguments can be made and sound like good arguments, because they do have some connection to God's design. It's the first one. Sex is given to us, and there is a natural appetite for sex given to us by God. So when the Corinthians were yelling, well, hey, this is just a natural thing, right? Like my my stomach needs food, and I give it food. Well, my body needs sex, so I'm going to have sex. God did, in fact, create sex, but he created it with that appetite for some very specific purposes. Throw up Genesis 128 for me, please. And God blessed them. This is right after he's created and made Adam and Eve. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when God designed sex and an appetite for sex as something to be enjoyed, here's what you guys need to know that appetite ultimately was created by God so that we would have babies. And here's why that's really hard for us to grasp. Because it's really, really easy in 2021 to have sex and not have a baby. Unless you're me and Jackie with Gideon. Oops. Jackie's like all red now. Like, I'll tell you, tell the whole church that Gideon was not planned. Nope. But here's the reality. Right? In God's original design, he placed inside of us desires to enjoy this, not just so that we could be fulfilled and enjoy all the beauty that comes with it, but so that you would have kids. So that you would be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Because, guys, what we need to understand is that there is a difference between human beings and every other animal that walks on this planet or swims or whatever you want to call it. God designed Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth and to rule it as he would, and we screwed it up. But the design at our core, we are made in the image and likeness of our creator so that we might rule with justice and goodness on this earth to the glory of our God and creator. And that original design and intention is still in there way deep. And part of what's supposed to come with that is to be fruitful and multiply. Now, guys, as as a parent, and as a parent of kids, that can sometimes be difficult because kids can sometimes be difficult. Hear me on this. Kids are a blessing. I have learned more about the character and the nature and the goodness of my creator through my kids than I learned in seminary, pastoring, or being married. That does not mean it's easy. That does not mean it's always fun. But it is a huge, huge blessing. And something that we as the church need to recapture is this idea of God wanting us as his people to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Some of you guys are like, I have the gift of singleness. I don't want to have kids. Okay, we're going to talk about you in two weeks. Just calm down. But the dominion mandate given by God is that more than likely the vast majority of us will get married, we will have kids, and we are called to be fruitful and multiply because sex was designed by God as a natural appetite to push forward the minion, to the dominion mandate because sex was meant to produce offspring. Not the sole reason, but a major one. Number two, sex was created for affection and showing that affection. Love and affection are essential components of a healthy relationship. Here's the problem, though. Right? Like, if... if affections are meant to be shown in a relationship and that's meant to be healthy. If we give into that all of the time, we're making the assumption that our desires and our feelings are always good and always right. I've got news for you. Throw up Genesis chapter three. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here you have the garden of Eden. You have God having created Adam and Eve for one another. I don't know if you've ever read the end of Genesis chapter two. Adam breaks into song and poetry over how excited he is that God has made Eve. He's like, oh my gosh, you did it. yes. It's the first ever worship song ever recorded in scripture. He is beyond excited. They enjoy one another. They become one. His affection for her is shown. They enjoy it. The moment sin enters the equation, what happens? Shame, guilt, corruption. They screwed it up, right? And we are byproducts of that. And so when we start thinking through this now, we are not to always trust ourselves. Right, as Matt Chandler often says, if you've ever listened to him, no one robs you of more joy than you. Right, as we think through this, right we see, well, hold on. Well, this has been messed up. Hold on, God created sex to be enjoyed between Adam and Eve as, a, as affection to be shown towards one another. But that got screwed up really, really early on. How can I trust myself? And we're going to see scripture says don't because throw up James chapter one for me. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Right, so what we see here is that God's design was beautiful, but sin has screwed it up. And only God can reorient desires inside of marriage to properly calibrate how sex is designed and to focus our attentions and affections on our spouse and create a loving, beautiful union that ultimately, and here's the kicker, if you ever read Ephesians chapter five, marriage reflects the gospel. And a beautiful union between a husband and life that experiences grace, mercy, and forgiveness and being fully known yet fully loved is a powerful testimony to what Christ has done for us. And when you take that outside of marriage and you put it somewhere else, you have a recipe for disaster. Because sex is meant for intimacy and a safe space, and the only relationship that can be a safe space by definition according to God and his standards for that is marriage. And when you bring it in anywhere else, you open yourself up to hurt, heartache, pain, callousness, harshness, all sorts of things. The last thing we see in scripture is that God designed sex To be enjoyed and as fulfilling. Right? God designed sex to be enjoyable. The problem is, is because of sin, it is a gift to be enjoyed, but we frequently, as human beings, elevate the gift above the giver of the gift. Romans 1 says this. It's the entire problem with the human race. They did not worship the creator, but they worshiped the creation. That's the problem with the human race. Instead of worshiping God who made all of this, we worship all these things He made money, sex, relationships, celebrity, power. God created all of those things. And God says, because of sin, you have marred the image of who I've made you to be, and you tend to worship those things. But God designed sex to be fulfilling and enjoyable so that we might have gratitude and that that gratitude would be a fulfilling gift in marriage that led to gratitude towards God for our spouse and for the good gift of sex. And outside of that, It becomes an idol that we worship. So here's something I know this morning. I know that God designed sex. I know that I've been talking for about 35 or 40 minutes now, and I know that 35 or 40 minutes is not going to be sufficient to get you to completely change your mind on what an entire decades, two decades, three decades, four decades, however old you are here this morning, worth of culture has taught you on this subject. Right, we're up against it. And the moment we step out of this building, and even some of us in here in this this building this morning are probably gonna wanna argue with one another over this stuff. But I'm showing you what God says to be true about sex, its design, and how we're supposed to respond to that. And And here's what else I know. Many of you already know what the Bible says. If not most of us in this room, we may not like it, we may not accept it, but we probably at least know what it says. And in that, right, you know things like pornography addiction, premarital sex, giving into homosexuality, all of these things are hot-button issues inside of the church, and the church has told you that God says it's wrong. Now, here's what normally happens inside of the church when you have a discussion on this kind of thing, and I alluded to this earlier. The church will tell us all of the things about God's design for sex. He'll pull out the arguments that Paul used. We'll we'll talk through those things. And then the pastor will get up here and they'll give a, a nice call and scream, fix it. And we'll bind one another up in legalism and we'll alienate those that struggle with sexual addiction, sexual immorality, and we'll ostracize one another screaming, why can't you be a better Christian? Why can't you follow God more? What is wrong with you? And the church has done that for far too long. That they've looked at this issue and they've heaped shame and guilt and condemnation. I've been guilty of it and I've had it done to me. Shame and guilt are really poor motivators, and they are not the motivators that God uses. So we're going to do something a little different this morning in light of this during our response time. I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come on up. If you've got a Bible, do me a favor. Open it up and turn to John chapter 6 with me. Because if you leave this morning, I don't want you leaving with all of the information about why sexual ethics are important and the arguments that Paul makes. I want you to leave with that, but I want you to leave with knowing this truth more than that. John chapter six. Jesus has just gotten done feeding the the 5,000 and he's with his disciples and he's sitting there and he's talking with them. And look at what he says, starting in verse 35. And I want you to listen and look closely at how Jesus promises to deal with his people. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Look at the promises that Jesus gives there. says, I am the bread of life. What's the promise he's giving you? I'm going to provide for you. I'm there for you. I'm available. Even when you don't know what you need, I'm going to provide it for you. Not, not necessarily what you want, but what you need. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Do You guys see the beauty in that? You didn't choose God. God chose you. You don't get to unchoose yourself. Gideon and Josiah can no can no more claim to not be my children than we could claim to not be children of God if God chose us. A simple DNA test would prove it quite quickly with my children. Yeah, sorry, Josiah. I know you're mad at Dad right now, but the the DNA test is in. He is the father. God chose you. He provides for you. And those that come to him, he will never cast out. Think about that. That is the heart of our Savior. The world might turn you away, the church might turn you away, but Jesus will not. All you have to do is come to him in your brokenness, and he is there for you. God wants us to come to him because he is there for us. I want to finish by sharing an illustration with you. When I was, I came into the Lord when I was 20 years old. And I had been steeped in all sorts of sexual sin, fornicating, addiction to pornography. I shared with you guys a little bit earlier about how I had been assaulted by my neighbor when I was a kid. There was a lot of confusion going on in my life, a lot. And I came to know Jesus and I was a clean slate. I had no idea what was going on. You know, and some people that loved me in the church started saying to me, you know, hey, God has this different standard. You know, you, you, you want to walk away from that. And I, I really, really struggled with some of this stuff. And I felt like shame and condemnation was being heaped up on me because I couldn't break the addiction cycles. And, and it was really, really problematic. And so a friend of mine sent me this sermon from Matt Chandler. And he, he shares an illustration. He's talking in the sermon about the heart of God and the love of God for those that are broken just broken, broken, sinful people. That's who Jesus is after, which in reality is every single one of us in this room, myself included. And as he's sharing this story, he, he, he gives this illustration, and it's famous at this point. Some of you guys may have heard it before. But he, the, my friend shared it with me because he said, well, Kevin, you need to understand what God really thinks of you, not what we think of you. And so as, as Matt's sharing the story, Right? He's talking about when he was younger and he, he'd finished college or he was still in Bible college and he had this friend that he was witnessing to and she was a single mother. And she'd had it rough. I mean, there was all sorts of baggage and he shares some of what that is, but he had been witnessing to her and he was trying to get her to come to this young adult ministry that he was a part of. And she kept saying no. And it was hard because she had, she had a child and so finding childcare was difficult. And finally, he... He gets child care for her, and she, he gets her to come. And he shows up and he realizes there's this older uh, preacher there that night who's giving a guest talk, and he's like, "Oh no." Because the talk was on sexual immorality. He's like, "I don't know this guy. What is going to happen?" And he said, the pastor got up at the beginning of the sermon and he had a rose. And he held the rose up and he kind of looked at it and he said, see how beautiful this is? See how delicate it is? S-s-s- the smell of it is beautiful. There's nothing more beautiful than a rose. He's like, I want you guys to experience my rose. And he he handed it to somebody in the crowd. He said, pass that thing around. I want you all to experience the rose. And then he said that this pastor began for the next 30 minutes to just scream at them at, at how promiscuous and how terrible they were. And how God's wrath was awaiting them and how angry God was at our sin and how horrible it was. Just shame, condemnation, guilt just being laid on them. And he said, I'm just sitting there thinking like, oh my gosh, what have I done to this poor girl that I've invited? She's never going to talk to me again. And he says the guy gets to the end of his sermon and he's at his crescendo. He's at the, the point where he's, he's drawn you in and you're listening to him. And he goes, hey, who has my rose? Somebody bring my rose up to me. And so somebody brings that rose up and it's, it's been passed around a room of a couple hundred people. It's all jacked up now. Petals have fallen off. The stem's been ripped in half. And he holds that rose up and he says, ladies, this is like what you do to yourself when you give yourself to people. And he said, I, he's like, I, I broke into tears. And he said, the pastor looked at them and said, Who would want this? He said, it was all I could do from holding back to scream. Jesus does. Jesus wants that rose. I I, I don't know what you guys are dealing with in here this morning. I don't. But I do know that there is a God who cares far more deeply for you And you even care about yourself. And he promises to you, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to him. Confess your sin. I don't care how horrible it is. He died for it. It can't be worse than the crucifixion. He gave his very life for you.